This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word. Scripture says that your word was breathed out by you into the minds and the writings of the apostles and the prophets as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And thus what was written was not a matter of human opinion, Scripture says. It was not a matter of, of uh, human insight, but it was your word revealed through human instruments. And you oversaw the process so that that which was recorded was free from error and therefore is your word. It is infallible and has absolute authority. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might recognize that there is a claim made upon our lives by your word, a claim of, of authority, a claim for obedience, a claim to recognize the seriousness of our study and of your word and what you have revealed to us, and that we might uh, study these things and think about these things and reflect upon them as the days go by that we may come to understand who you are, come to understand your plan for us even better, and that this might be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you turn in your Bibles with me this morning, uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 down to verse 21. One of the anecdotes that I've heard from the camp was that uh, the first day as they began to sit down in Bible study, it wasn't but five or ten minutes before... Uh, a number of the kids that were there started looking around for a pen or paper and scrambling for some way to to take notes. And that as the week went by, uh, some of these teenagers that had never before really shown much interest in uh, the Word, or they did, if they did, it was just because, well, this was the what they did at church and this was sort of the way they had um, had, had grown up but they never had really taken personal ownership for what they were being taught. And yet in the context of this, this camp, which was targeted to them, it's like the light went on inside their heads and they realized, you know, this was something for them. 
something for that they needed to know in terms of their own life, in terms of their own spiritual life. And so uh, it's, it's at times like that. I know uh, I had moments like that, different stages of waking up, uh, spiritually waking up, uh, so to speak, over uh, the years that I was a teenager, both in church as well as at camp, where you realize how important the Word is. And even though there are things there that are difficult to understand at times or you may not see how it fits together, it is a a growth process. And the spiritual life is based upon knowledge. We are, as Peter says at the close of First Peter, we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is based on knowledge. And a lot of times in life as we come to study things and learn things, if you just reflect back upon your academic career, you know that there are things that you study, with the exception of possibly algebra, that eventually you did find a need for, and it was important to uh, know those things that you had learned at some earlier stage in life. Uh, even though the uh, maybe the application of that knowledge was not readily apparent uh, for several years, and you have to learn certain things that may seem rather uh, abstract or unnecessary as a first or second or third grader, but that becomes a foundation for what you're able to learn and apply when you get a little older into seventh, eighth, ninth grade, or even beyond that. Uh, so the same thing is true about spiritual truths. We have to learn these things as the foundation of other things that are taught in Scripture and doctrines that are taught in Scripture, and it's God the Holy Spirit who then, uh, within our own souls, puts these things together, and it becomes a part of our of our spiritual life and a foundation that leads to future growth, uh, growth and development. And so it's always ultimately a sign of the maturation process and the growth process when we begin to reach this point where we understand that what we're learning about God and his word today is to take us into the future, not just a future in terms of the next 10 or 20 years, but it's preparatory for a future that is into eternity when we will be spending uh, our eternity with the Lord in heaven. And so it always has that orientation of the, of the future. And there is a word, one particular single word, that is used in the New Testament that sort of encapsulates this whole future orientation. And it is a word that in English doesn't always carry this particular connotation, although that is, even in English, part of its root meaning. It's not just a political slogan. In fact, it shouldn't even be one because it, you understand the real meaning of the word. It uh, is sort of meaningless in the way it's often applied today. And that word is hope. Hope is not just some sort of wishful optimism. We may say here in Texas right now that we hope that it rains sometime soon. Even if you maybe, you know, we try doing something like everybody going out and washing your car the same day. Maybe it'll, perhaps it might rain, sort of wishful optimism. Or maybe if everybody washed their clothes and hung them outside to dry, 
you know, we had this hope that something might, uh, might affect things. That's just wishful optimism. There's no certainty there. There's just this, this sort of, well, maybe if we do this, we hope that it'll affect things, and it's, it has no real, real certainty to it. But the hope that is spoken of in the Bible is a concept of something that brings and has as part of it a, a conviction of reality. It is something that is certain. It is something that we can count on. We know with a certainty that something is going to take place at some time in the future. And so we have a phrase that shows up in the Scripture that's related to hope. We run into it in this verse, the third verse that we're looking at this morning, verse 23, the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is that there is a certain future destiny. So as part of this concept of hope, there is a sense of assurance, a certainty, a confidence in our salvation. But this concept of hope that we have in the Scripture isn't limited to assurance. There are some within uh, the free grace uh, camp that limit it to that. But it, it has to do with an expectation of our destiny in heaven, what will transpire following the judgment seat of Christ on into the time when we will rule and reign as part with, with the Lord Jesus Christ in the messianic kingdom as well as on into eternity. This has been part of Paul's message to the Colossians, and it is at the center of understanding these three verses that I want to look at this morning. So it focuses on living today in light of eternity, making decisions today in light of the future. Let me read these three verses. Verse 21 says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, as you look at those three verses, there's several key ideas that need to be explained and understood to catch the uh, sense of what Paul is saying in these three verses. He restates what he has talked about in the previous verse, verses, verses 18 and 19 related to reconciliation. There is an allusion to the judgment seat of Christ, that which is in the future, and that's related to the phrase hope of the gospel. Uh, we have concepts in verse 22 such as holiness and being blameless and above reproach. Just exactly does, what does that mean? Uh, as part of understanding this passage, we also have to understand the distinctions that Scripture make between our works and the work of Christ on the cross. And we have to understand this concept that these three verses drive toward, and that is continuing in the faith. What in the world does that mean in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith? Does that mean that if you don't continue in the faith, that if you don't remain steadfast, that you lose your salvation, which is what some people think, 
this means. Others think that what it means is if you're truly saved, then you will continue in the faith, and continuing in the faith and being steadfast is just uh, sort of the uh, what what gives validity to your claim to be saved. But if you don't continue, if you're not steadfast, then, well, you really weren't ever saved. That is what is usually referred to as the lordship salvation position. So just exactly what does that mean? Well, in order to get there, we have to start with verse 21 to understand what the apostle is talking about here. In verse 21, he begins with this phrase, and you. And in the Greek, this is placed at the very beginning of the Greek sentence, which puts it in a place of emphasis. But the word you is interesting here because in English, when you look at this, you would suspect that the you here is in the subject position. Uh, at the beginning of this sentence, in English, we norm, that's normally where we put the subject of the verb. And so we would suspect that this is going to be uh, directed to the you of his audience. But the reality is that in the Greek, this isn't in the nominative case, which would make it the subject. It's in the accusative case, which means it's the object of some kind of a verb. The only verb that it can be an object of is the verb uh, to present, which is found down in verse 22, that uh, they're to be presented uh, holy. So he says, and you, and then there's a digression in this relative clause that covers the rest of that verse in the first part of verse 22, and you to present you holy. So he has to repeat that you because of his uh, diversion as he ran down this rabbit trail in between. But he goes back and picks up in his relative clause here the idea of reconciliation because it's important to understand what he will say uh, subsequently. So the emphasis is to you, to present you. This is the focal point here, is presenting the believers in Colossae, but that would also include by extension and application every believer to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, in understanding the you, he wants us to not forget what he has just said in verses uh, 18 and 19 on reconciliation, and so he goes back to that. He says you. Now, remember who you are. Remember your background. Remember what has been accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. You who once were alienated and enemies uh, in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. And this is the uh, word apolatriao, which is a participle in the Greek. And that's very important to understand this. And the grammar is that this is a perfect passive participle. Now, the perfect tense is really important in a number of different places in Scripture because the perfect tense always describes an action that is completed. It's not an action that's still going on. It's not an action that's in the future. It is an action that is completed. It is. It was completed in the past, uh, 
and continued on into the present. So it says, once you were alienated. So that's talking about a completed past state. They were alienated and enemies. You see, there's a glitch here. There we go. Uh, they were enemies. Ekthros is the uh, Greek word here. It is a noun. And they were enemies, they were hostile, they were at enmity with God. And this took place in their mind. Now, this idea of being alienated in enemies is parallel to what Paul has said in passages such as Ephesians 2.12 and Ephesians 4.18. Ephesians 2.12, he stated that at that time, you, and there he's talking to the Ephesians as Gentiles, at that time, you were without Christ. This is prior to the cross. You were without Christ and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. As I pointed out when we looked at this, Paul is emphasizing that not only did sin cause an alienation of mankind to God, but also because of God's blessing to Israel and giving them the promises and the covenants, it caused a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jews were in a privileged position, not of salvation, but of knowledge, of information, of revelation that made, made them closer to God because they had the Scriptures. And so there was this alienation at that time. And then verse 18 reads that uh, having their understanding darkened, talking about the previous state of not being saved, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And again, this was a perfect participle. So the state, the significance of that participle is that it emphasizes a state that's completed in the past that is the state in which we were born, which is spiritually dead. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. And that state uh, man was alienated from the life of God. And so that means, means that they are enemies oriented to God. Now, Paul then goes on to say, for some reason I had some animation here I didn't realize I picked up, that you yet now he has reconciled. And this word for reconciliation is the word that we've seen in the past, apakatalaso. It's a completed, a total reconciliation. And as we studied previously, reconciliation is the work of, man, uh, <clears throat> work of God for man. It is not that God changes, but it's that he does something to change Man's position, mankind under the curse of Adam's sin is in a position of hostility and enmity, but at the cross, God changes that. There is a legal orientation that changes. So we're told that reconciliation is the work of God for man in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility uh, to peace in order to make possible an actual eternal fellowship with a righteous and just God. And I pointed out that there are two ways in which reconciliation was accomplished. The first is what is called forensically or legally at the cross. Another way of talking about it is objectively. This is 
where for all mankind the sin penalty is paid so that mankind's relationship to God has been changed by what happened at the cross. Then we saw that there is a second way in which reconciliation is used, and that is when an individual trusts in Christ, so that in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world. That includes all unbelievers. It's, it's everyone in the inhabited world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or not crediting their sins to them, their trespasses to them, and that God has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. So we saw that God performs this action of reconciliation. The world, that is, unbelievers, receive that action. And so it tells us that sin penalty objectively, legally is paid for. Now, that is tremendous because what happens in, and this is something that's not always understood uh, in Christian circles, and that is that sin isn't the issue anymore. So often when you hear people uh, trying to evangelize, they spend a lot of time emphasizing repentance from sin, and they put all this emphasis and pile this guilt on people to get them to do something about their sin. Well, you and I can't do anything about our sin. That's what Scripture teaches. It's that it is Christ on the cross who did what needed to be done about our sin. We don't do it. He did it. It was paid for at the cross. So the issue is no longer uh, our failures, our sins, our disobedience to God. The issue is faith in Christ, acceptance of the solution, a solution we can't do anything about. Now, that objective payment was accomplished while we were in a state of hostility to God. God didn't say, okay, you need to do these five things, and then I will see about saving you. You need to do something to improve yourself. The uh, human viewpoint adage that represents that is the idea that God helps those who help themselves. Well, what the Scripture teach, teaches is that we are all helpless. There's nothing that we can do. Uh, to save ourselves or to make ourselves make us savable. God did it all. So Romans 5, 6 says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in his message on reconciliation and reminder of that, Paul says, and you, remember who you are now, you once were alienated and enemies in your mind, in your thinking, by wicked works. So it's not only thinking, but action. You were alienated and enemies, but now he has reconciled you. And that took place where? See, this is the important thing here. When did that reconciliation take place? And you ask most people that, and they're going to say, well, it, it took place when I trusted Christ. Wrong. That's not what it says. See, look at the passage. Yet uh, The Scripture reference is in there, but read it as if that's not there. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Now, when did that happen? When, when did he die? When you trusted in him? No. He died in A.D. 33. So this is talking about that objective aspect of reconciliation. Now, last time, in the last, couple, last message, I talked about the sin barrier 
that exists between that existed between God and man. Man erected this sin barrier. And on the left column, you have all of the different uh, components or aspects of sin. And the right column, all of the different aspects of what Christ did on the cross, which saw and what God does for us that solves the sin problem. Now, the lower square that focuses on the problem of uh, sin, the penalty of sin, and the character of God on the left, resolved by unlimited atonement, redemption, and propitiation on the right, that's the objective payment of the price for sin. That is what God does in order to change the orientation of man toward him. The one aspect is propitiation, which emphasizes the fact that his justice and righteousness are satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. And because his justice and righteousness are satisfied, that changes the status of the human race. It doesn't change them individually and experientially, but it changes that legal orientation so that they are no longer legally hostile. They are now reconciled, but they're still spiritually dead. They're still uh, unrighteous. These upper, the upper categories are they're still unrighteous, they're still spiritually dead, they're still in Adam. The only way that changes is when that, by putting your trust in Christ. And that's the experiential or the subjective aspect of realizing reconciliation. When we trust in Christ, God immediately imputes to us the righteousness of Christ and declares us to be just. He makes us born again. God the Holy Spirit uh, gives us new life in Christ. We receive a human spirit so that we are no longer dead spiritually and separated from God. We are now alive spiritually. That takes place at the instant of faith in Christ. And we are also identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that through what is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit or where God the Holy Spirit is used to identify us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are placed in Christ. This also happens instantly and simultaneously with the other events at the time of faith alone in Christ alone. So that the bottom part speaks of the objective reconciliation that God enacted on the basis of the cross, and the upper is the subjective realization of it when we trust in Christ as our Savior. Because the cross solved the sin problem, Mankind is in a position of being having been reconciled with God, and because that has occurred, Paul says it, we are we are given the message of reconciliation to proclaim to the world. So, having reminded the his readers of what they have in Christ, he goes on to say he has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death for a purpose. And that purpose is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, there's various ways in which we could understand uh, this particular statement. Uh, is this talking about experiential holiness, ex- being experientially blameless or above reproach? And there are passages that we could go to that would emphasize that. Uh, is it talking about a positional holiness 
blamelessness or being above reproach, or is it talking about the ultimate direction, the ultimate purpose God has in saving us? Well, let's first look at these words to understand them. Holiness is the idea of being set apart for the service of God. Holy is one of those uh, uh, religious words that's used and abused so much that most people really don't know what holy means anymore. They think it means morally pure or perfect, and really the core meaning of the word is simply to be set apart so that you are in a position where you can be used by God. That means that the sin problem has to be dealt with both both positionally as well as experientially. So sometimes holiness in the New Testament talks about our position being in Christ, and therefore we are all positionally set apart for God's service forever, or we are experientially in in fellowship with him. So the word can have either uh, dimension to it. Now when we look at this, uh, some additional ideas in this passage, we also see blamelessness. This is the word Amomas, which has to do with that which is unblemished or blameless. It's the word that's used uh, by Peter to refer to Jesus Christ as the lamb who was without spot. That's amomas, without spot or blemish. It has to do with uh, blamelessness uh, and being without sin. Now, this word is used in a number of passages with different meanings. In Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians 5.27... Jude 24 and Revelation 14:5 it relates to the end result. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 it states that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. The idea there is this is the end game. God saves us here in time, but it's for an ultimate purpose of being holy and blameless. It's not focusing on our experience in this life. It's focusing on the ultimate end game when we are in heaven. Hebrews 9.14 applies it to our position in Christ, that in Christ we are blameless. In Philippians 2.15, it's talking about the fact that we are to become blameless so that we can be we can shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So there it's talking about our experience of spiritual growth. And then 1 Peter 1.19 talking about the Lamb of God who is without spot, that is in reference to uh, Jesus Christ as being perfect without sin. But see, so we can't really look at the word and say just because we have this word that it means A, B, C, or D. You have to look at the context, in other words, to find out what we're talking about here. The third word that's used is the word above reproach, which is the word anakletos, which means blameless. So sometimes it's translated blameless, just like a momos is, or irreproachable or without reproach. It's really used of someone against whom no legal charge can be brought. So it has an experiential dimension to it because uh, there are verses that talk about the fact that we should be with above reproach. That's related to pastors, deacons. Uh, that's experiential. And it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean perfect. Uh, and then it's also used in a positional sense. 
So we've got these this word group used, uh, amomas, Ephesians 1.4, Philippians 2.15, and then, but this last verse gives us a little bit of a clue as to how Paul could be using it here in Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 22. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says, who also will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're blameless positionally because we're in Christ. But this isn't talking about our position in Christ. This is talking about our presentation at the judgment seat of Christ. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to the judgment seat of Christ, which is different from the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is the evaluation of believers before Christ after the rapture occurs in terms of how well we did in terms of our spiritual growth and spiritual service during our time on earth. So it has to do with rewards and blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. So that gives us a clue. Maybe what Paul, the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Colossians 1.22 when he talks about being presented holy, blameless, and above reproach, maybe what he's talking about here has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. Is there another word in the passage that would indicate that for us? Yes, there is. And this is the word that is translated present. Present. It's the Greek word paristemi, which is used in various places to describe our presentation, the presentation of believers before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. We see this specifically in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, we read, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For, here's the key phrase, For we shall all stand, and the word that is translated stand is our word paristemi. And it literally it should be translated, because it's a future tense, it should be translated as we shall be presented to or set before the judgment seat of Christ. So we have this word paristemi in our passage in Colossians 1.22, plus we have other terms there that indicate that this is talking about being presented to the Lord Jesus Christ as having grown and matured spiritually or experientially in this life. Two other passages that support this are found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, and Jude, verse 24. Jude only has one chapter, so you just list the verse. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we read Paul saying at the close of that epistle, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's experiential sanctification and spiritual growth. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's focusing on our, our experiential sanctification in terms of our presentation to Christ at his coming, that is, at the rapture. In Jude 24, Jude ends that epistle with this benediction, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you, there's our word, it's related to the word uh, that we have in Colossians 1.22, is par histemi, this is just the root verb histemi, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so when we look at verse 23, we read, or 22, we read, in the, uh, re- having been reconciled, he has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death for the purpose of presenting us, and this uh, holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, that is, at the judgment seat of Christ, because we have grown experience, experientially. Now, you get into some problems. This is one of the great things about theology is you have to look at some passages like this and say, well, maybe it could refer to, it could refer to something positional. But if it's positional, then you get into a real problem with the, what verse 23 means. Because then it would, verse 23 would imply a loss of salvation or that salvation is actually confirmed by our works. But there are passages in Scripture such as Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9 that, it's, that we're saved by grace and not by works. And Titus 3, 5 that it's not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy he saved us. So, so it's very clear in Scripture that we're not saved and our salvation is not confirmed by good works. So if that's clearly stated in other passages then though verse 23 might conceivably indicate that because there's no contradiction in Scripture, we have to look a little deeper and say, well, maybe it implies something else. And so verse 22, focusing on experiential uh, sanctification for our presentation to Christ at the judgment seat of Christ would be a better understanding there. And that would teach us that what's happening in verse 23 has to do with our spiritual growth and not gaining spiritual life. So verse 23 begins, If indeed you continue in the faith. Now it looks like it's saying that you will be presented holy and blameless if you continue in the faith. That would mean that being holy and blameless and above reproach would be dependent upon uh, continuing in the faith. And that is only true if we take verse 22 as experiential growth. And the if here is a first-class condition which presents it as, as most, a most likely scenario. And the idea is, the real idea comes through when you look at the main verb, if you continue and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, being moved away from the hope of the gospel implies something, doesn't it? If I leave my house, what does that tell you? I had to be there in the first place. So to be moved away from the hope of the gospel means that they would already have to be in a position of having understood the hope of the gospel. So there's an implication there that They're already assumed to be saved, and this is a warning against distraction and being moved away from a position they already hold. So this is a key phrase, this idea of not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So that first phrase, if indeed, indicates that Paul is assuming that they will continue to be steadfast, 
And he goes on to say, if you continue in the faith. Now, this is another big clue as to what he's talking about here because that word translated continue is the Greek word meno, word we studied before, a word that is used in John uh, chapter 15 when Jesus says that we are to abide in him and we are to remain in him or continue in him. That's that word meno. And uh, I can't think of any place. There may be an exception someplace that I've missed, but as far as my studies have indicated, that word meno is always related to fellowship, not justification. It has to do with the ongoing relationship of the believer to Jesus Christ not entering into that relationship through uh, justification. So what Paul is talking about here isn't entering into justification or salvation, but abiding in Christ, remaining in fellowship. So he says, if you continue in the faith, and by this he's talking about not not becoming a believer, but if you are continuing to grow, and how do we grow? We grow by means of faith, by trusting in God. So this is the faith rest drill. This is the uh, believer's orientation to God on the basis of faith. If you continue in the faith, and then we have this next phrase, grounded and steadfast. Now that first word grounded means to have a foundation from the Greek verb uh, themeliao, it's a perfect passive participle again. So what he is saying, if, if indeed you abide or remain in the faith, having already been grounded or having already been had a foundation established, that establishment of the foundation is your justification salvation. That already occurred. And that's the emphasis of that perfect participle that has already established. If you continue, because you've already laid the foundation and steadfast, which is a noun, steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So that's the idea, because you've already been grounded and then on the basis of that, remaining uh, steadfast. This is the same idea. And when you have this word, the meliao, in Ephesians 3.17, which reads that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, having already been, or having already laid a foundation and having been grounded in love, it refers to a past completed uh, action. So these two words here indicate, the first word indicates something that's already accomplished and the steadfast indicates continuing growth in the spiritual life. The word steadfast is also used in the context of spiritual growth in 1 Corinthians 15:58, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul is clearly talking to them as believers. Now, this is important to understand here. Throughout the epistle, is Paul treating them as believers or unbelievers? See, if you take this in a, in a positional sense, you'd have to think that Paul is either warning them about losing their salvation or warning them that they may not already be saved. But throughout the, the epistle, he refers to them as saints and faithful brethren in Christ in verse 2. He said they had a reputation for faith and love in verse verse 4. 
In one six, he says they were people whose faith was already bearing fruit. In one six, he also says they had heard and understood the gospel of grace. They're clearly already saved. They loved in the spirit, verse 8. They had been delivered from the power of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of Christ, verse 13. Verse 14, he said they were redeemed and forgiven. In verses 21 to 22, that they were reconciled. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, he will say that he will rejoice because he sees their, the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. In 2.6, he talks about the fact that they had received Christ. In 2.7, that they've been rooted in the faith. In uh, 2.10, that they're complete in Christ. In 2.11, that they have been circumcised in Christ. In 2.12, that they've been identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 2.13, that they have been made alive together with him, that is, regenerated and forgiven of all their sins. Uh, in verse uh, 2.20 and 3.1, they've died with Christ and been raised with Christ. In 3.3, that they died with Christ and their life is now hidden with Christ. In 3.4, he says Christ is our life. And in 3.7, he says that they once walked in God's wrath as unbelievers, indicating that now they are not. So it's very clear that Paul does not even think about them as being unbelievers. He is dealing with them uh, as believers. Now, the problem is that they, like we, have a problem with the culture around us. The culture around them was a toxic mix of Greek philosophy and mysticism and a mix of uh, uh, Jewish ritual and Greek superstition and all these things were just kind of mixed up in the blender of bad ideas, and that's how the average person uh, thought in terms of that popular, popular religion. We live with a different toxic blend with a mix of Darwinian evolution and Marxism and Freudianism and um, a number of other isms that have come along, socialism and other things that uh, are part of the air we breathe, the things we hear over the media uh, that influence our culture. But we, as believers who are in Christ, are not supposed to be influenced by those things. We are not to be moved away. Why? Because of our orientation to our destiny, that is the hope of the gospel, which you heard. The hope of the gospel focuses on uh, that future destiny that God has for us uh, in Christ. Hope always focuses on where God is taking us, and it's not some sort of wishful, uh, wishful optimism. Now, to get an understanding of this, if you go back and look at the first part of Colossians, in Colossians 1.4, Paul said, since we have heard of your faith in Christ, that's their salvation, their justification when they believed in Christ. And second, of your love for all the saints, that's a result of their spiritual growth and application of the word. And then those two things are said to be, be based on the hope that was laid up for you in heaven. So their understanding of their future destiny impacted their present reality and their present decision-making. And so this is where uh, Paul is going here in verse 23, that the significance is that we're not to be distracted from the 
hope of the gospel from being influenced by our future destiny, understanding that we live today in light of eternity. And then he concludes by saying that it is this message, this message of a future certain destiny is the one that was proclaimed to every creature under heaven and which he, Paul, had become a minister. This is the focal point. The gospel isn't just this message that, okay, now I know that when I die, I'm not going to go to the lake of fire, I'm going to go to heaven. But it provides us with a future life and destiny and reality in terms of where how we're going to serve God in the future that is to shape the decisions that we make today. Because we know where we're headed, we know that we have to do certain things today. Otherwise, that future destiny will become uh, somewhat tarnished and maybe uh, obliterated in some way, not that that we'll, won't be in heaven, but that we may lose something at the judgment seat of Christ. We may lose reward and lose blessing. So it is to motivate us that we should continue steadfast living today in light of eternity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you have a destiny for us, and that for any who believes in Jesus Christ, there is eternal destiny in heaven, but it is on the basis of our steadfast growth, our orientation to you, that in time, and as we grow under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we will receive reward. It is the capacity uh, for righteousness that we develop in this life that becomes a basis for our rewards and our service when we are with the Lord in his kingdom in the next life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. We have the certainty that if you believe in Jesus, then you will have eternal life. But we have a hope that focuses on our future destiny, that focuses on our role and responsibilities in the next life that will be shaped and impacted by how we live today. Father, we pray that you will uh, challenge us with these things, that those who have never trusted in Christ would take this opportunity to do so, that your future destiny is secured by simply believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in him as the one who paid for your sins. But beyond that, we are challenged to be steadfast and immovable so that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and be prepared for our destiny, our roles, and our responsibilities in heaven. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.